We're going to John 20 uh, this evening, John chapter 20. And this evening I want to go back to the day of the resurrection. Um, I want to look at the disciples just in between when the Lord was resurrected and up until when they saw Jesus resurrected. There was the space of when the, uh, they went to the empty tomb in the morning and they couldn't find him. And they didn't see him until late that evening. And so there's this gap. And I want you to see, what I want you to see is that there's a great difference in the truth that Jesus is resurrected and knowing the reality of that truth. There's a big difference because there's things that we can know in our heads, information that just passes through and it doesn't really impact us. And then there's things that, know, that we know deep in our hearts and we know the fullness of it and we know the reality of it. It's a world of a difference. They say the gap between the heart and the head is the biggest gap that you can find. Sometimes that can be true even for us as believers now. John 20 tells us the story. We'll cut in at verse 18, just as Mary, uh, as Mary speaks with the Lord. Remember, she thought he was the gardener. She thought that he was someone else. Uh, Verse 18, when Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands on his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Remember the images that the disciples had last seen. Christ beaten, murdered. It had been too much for most of these men. Too much literally for them because most of them had not been in attendance for any of this. Um, Where had they been? Where were they? Well, those that Jesus had dedicated so much of his time and ministry to molding and shaping. Where were they? They had run away. It had been too much. Mary was telling them about the fact that she had seen the Lord and had spoken to them. Clopas and his friend had burst in saying, we've just been talking to Jesus. We were on the road to miss and we was talking to him and then we went down and we invited him in and we were eating and then he gave thanks and then we suddenly realized who he was. We had to come back. We had to tell you. And in the middle of this busy scene, this confused scene, Jesus appears to the room. Now here's the thing. The church begins in a second-story room in Jerusalem with a bunch of very frightened men. This group of men with Clopas and his friend and Thomas who wouldn't join them for another eight days, this group of men and a few women are hiding in a second-story room and they start the church. We've spent, they've spent three years with Jesus himself. He's taught them. He's instructed them. Yet at this point, they don't really know what to say. After all this teaching, they're stuck for words. They've walked with him from Capernaum and Galilee and Jericho and Jerusalem. Yet they're all sitting in this room now and they're looking at their feet. Looking at the sandals. They don't really know what to say. They don't really know what to do. They're messengers with no message. Soldiers with no fight. And all their courage, and all their bravery, and all that they've seen, all the miracles that they've witnessed, all the things that they've learned and taken on board, have taken them to a little room where they lock the door 
and they keep an eye out for the Romans. I don't know how much eye contact is being made between them. I, I, I don't know how much conversation there is. Are they nervously trying to get an escape route out of Jerusalem? Like, let's get out of Dodge. Let, let's meet up somewhere else. Let's get our story straight. Let's get the theology straight. Let's get it straight, and then we can come back and start fresh. Let's get back up to Galilee. Let's get back to where our support is. Let's get back to where most people know us, where our families are. I don't know. Or maybe they're passionately arguing with each other. Uh, and you've got Peter and John, and they're trying to figure out what's going on. Listen, guys, we, there, there, there's no one there. The soldiers were gone, uh, and, the, and the body was gone, and it was folded, and we know that he said this. Mary's telling this, but why did Jesus appear to her and not to us? Where is he? Who knows? It's a real moment of introspection. It, it's a real pivotal turning point. On one hand, you've got these guys and they're frustrated and they're trying to come to terms with, have we thrown the last three years of our lives away? Have we fallen for another false messiah? Because it's Jerusalem, there's lots of false messiahs coming and going all the time. Did we get conned? Did we fall for it? Can we go back to, you know, there's this shame. Can I go back to Galilee now? Can I go back to my old job as a fisherman? What, what are we supposed to do now? Where are we supposed to go? I can't believe we've wasted this time. And with that is mixed this other sense of, I can't believe when Jesus needed us, we ran away. Can't believe when Jesus needed us to speak up, to stand up, to do something. When those soldiers came and arrested him, we scattered. And for all the promises that they had made and all the arguing about who would be the first in the kingdom and who would be sitting there at his right hand and who's going to be sitting in the best seats in heaven. For all their talk, none of them had kept their promises. When the soldiers came to take Jesus, they took off. Peter followed for a while, sure, from a distance, only to deny him when pressed. John managed to get as far as the cross, but he didn't hang around like the other ladies watching. Think about it. They were still full from that meal, from the Last Supper. <laughs> the bread and, and the wine that they had had was still in their stomachs whenever they ran. It says, this is my body, this is my blood. <laughs> we're going. And the facade of the sons of thunder calling down God's vengeance on people. And Thomas, remember Thomas was the one who spoke in John 11. He said, let's go, let's die with him. He wasn't always a doubter. He was a bold disciple. Let's go, let's die with Jesus. And Peter, of course, he says, even though everyone else will go, I will never go. I will never leave you. Just as, as we get to this point, I think it's worth remembering, and this is just a, a point about being human, okay? This is just being human. It's always easier to make promises when we think that they're going to be easy to keep, isn't it? <laughs> it's always the easiest time to make the promises, especially to God. 
whenever you don't think there's going to be a high price to pay. It's easy to talk about living fully for him whenever his plans seem to coincide with our plans. Whenever it seems to be that he's the one who's giving, we're receiving, and he's making the promises, and anything that we have to do, well, it seems to be fairly easy. He says, yeah, God, absolutely, I'll do that. I'm going to live for you. Of course, it's not just with God. We do it all the time in society. Society is filled with people who are suffering because of broken promises. For better or for worse, we say. In sickness and in health, we say. Till death us do part, we say. Broken promises because they were made in good times, in healthy times. And it was easy to make the promise. We could go on and on. It's a human issue to make promises whenever we think it will be easy to keep. And so often then we struggle whenever it gets more difficult and we have to stand on our word. And I want you to think about that because I don't know if you've ever broken a promise. I'm I'm not going to ask for a show of hands if anyone has ever broken a promise. But I'm pretty sure we've all broken a promise somewhere along the line. Whether we meant to or not, whether that was our intention or not, I'm sure we've all broken our promise. It's hard to face that person knowing that actually when it came down to it, we made a choice that left them hurt. We made a decision that left them hurt. And when you live in the shadow that's caused by that, that shame, that fear, you begin to understand how the disciples were feeling. Never mind the fact that the Romans were probably trying to round them up, that there's people out because they were aware that the body was gone. They're aware that there's something happening. They're aware, and so they're trying to make, get their inquiries going as well. Now, of course, Thomas, he's not here in the room at this point. We don't really know where he is. We don't know how long they've been together. If they all ran off on that night that the Lord was arrested and betrayed, and then they all rendezvoused together that night, and they've been together ever since, or whether they've just got together that day on the Easter Sunday morning, we don't know. Did they, you know... Was, is Thomas just the last one to get back? Did they have a buddy system, you know, sort of like in primary school, you know, in the runaway? And maybe, maybe Thomas was supposed to be buddies with Judas and he didn't know where to go. And so nobody knew where he was because Judas was his buddy and Judas was gone. You never know. What we do know, though, is that they were living with the memory of them feeling their Savior when he needed them. And no matter where they went, they're faced with reminders of him. They sneak out for supplies. They see a leper and remember about how Christ had compassion. The rain starts beating down and they think of the storms that were stilled by his voice. They see children playing and they think of how Christ had always time to bring a child to his knee and said, suffer the little children and come unto me. Whenever they had no time for such petty things. They look up and they see the temple and they see people going to sacrifice for its Passover time. And they think of Jesus' sacrifice and the blood that was pouring from his wounds the last they saw him. How can they forget him? How can they move on from this? How can they move on from the hurt and the shame and the fear of trying to live without him, without the source of bravery and courage that they had known for so long? This is the beginning of the church. 
This is where the storybook of the church would start. Once upon a time, there is a dozen or so terrified men hiding in a second-story room in Jerusalem. And before we get too hard on them, I think it's worth noting that this feels more familiar to us than maybe what we would like to imagine. For how many Christians, or maybe how many churches, find themselves in the exact same position as these men in this room? We find ourselves scared, hiding away from the world, and we'd rather lock the door and keep people out. world's full of scary people. We don't really know quite how to engage with all the political issues that are going on today. It'd be better if they weren't in our church, because that would be hard for us. What if they tried to make a legal case, or what if they tried to do something? And so many people, so, so many people who have followed Christ now find themselves with just enough faith to come together and meet with other believers on a Sunday but they don't quite have enough faith to go out again with that message and to share that message out in the world. And I've called it the upper room mentality. I've sent to the, the folks up in the prayer meeting. The upper room can sometimes conjure different pictures. I want you to picture the upper room in this window, this gap, with, where, where the reality or the they have the truth that Jesus is resurrected, but they're not experiencing the reality of that truth. And this is what happens whenever we, we, ha- we live in that gap of, of understanding that there is a truth, but not appreciating the fullness of that truth. Fear, anxiety, doubt, they lie in wait. Uh, and so many Christians have this upper room mentality, and it's paralyzing to so many congregations. Sure, we don't literally lock the doors of the church. We're not, they're not literally locked, but they might as well just be because well, there's just a little faith and just too little fire. Upper room Christianity. It sounds spiritual, it sounds thoughtful, it sounds prayerful, but ultimately, it's a church that doesn't really want to engage with the world. Yes, we're happy enough to meet together. Yes, we're happy for us all to come together because we're all safe with each other, but we're, take it to the streets. You go first. I'll be right behind you. Think about some of the conversations that could happen, okay? And these aren't conversations necessarily have happened in our church, but they they could happen in any church. Jeff, of course we're doing our part. We had that special meeting where, you know, people could come and we booked that speaker and that minor celebrity who has a testimony. We're doing our bit. Jeff, how dare you say we don't care about evangelism? We give £300 a month to, you know, uh, that guy in Africa who does that thing with, with orphans. We pray for him every day. Poverty, of course we think the church should do its bit. We've planned a planning session to get a committee selected to think about maybe perhaps doing something under a very specific set of circumstances, possibly, someday. Well, we haven't done that yet, but that's the plan. And you see the problem, of course. Good people, good ideas, good intentions, 
meetings and budgets and committees and words and promises, but the door stays locked. Let's try and keep it a wee bit personal, though. Sometimes we like to talk individually about the disciples because each of them was different, and we've got so much that we could learn from each individual one. Each of them had a slightly different character, had different interactions with Christ, went on and, and did different things from this point. But here's the thing. We read in, in our verse, uh, in John 20, verse 19, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked were the disciples who, for fear of the Jews, sorry, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. They were all afraid. All had different reasons, all had different characteristics, all had different points of view, but they were all afraid. And so I wonder, what holds you back from sharing your faith? What is it that your heart says to you every time to put you off speaking up? What, what's that we go-to excuse that your soul whispers to you? Maybe that it's, it's more important that they're your friend first. Because, uh, hey, it's all about relationships. So, so, so let's, make sh- let, let's not spoil the fun. Let, let's just keep enjoying the friendship. Whatever it is, there's something that sparks a fear of failure. A fear of getting caught in, in a discussion that is too deep for us, or, or a fear of, of maybe it's spiraling out of control and then we get all turned, turned around, or, or maybe they, they start arguing with us or they get cross at us. It says, well, I can't risk it, that, that happening, so I, I'm going to just stand back. And it's like we just lock the door. I'm safe in this wee space, and I'm not going to go out. I don't know what might happen if I go out. And so we find ourselves in the exact same cycle as the disciples. It's not that we've turned our back on Christ, of course not. Nothing so serious, nothing so extreme, but we're not exactly running towards him either. You're not like Peter when he was cursing his name, but your worship isn't just as passionate and as joyful as it should be. And you're like these men in the upper room. You know it's right when you meet together. You know that you ought to do. You're just not really sure what you're supposed to do next. So what does it take to unlock the doors? What does it take? To go from hiding in fear away from those who think differently from us to speak up and to be courageous, to be unafraid. And, and here's the thing, and okay, I'll, I do want you to raise your hands for this one, okay? I do want you to raise your hands, all right? A bit of audience participation. Hands up if you were taught that courage was a good and noble trait, to be courageous. Yeah, it's usually, yeah. And it's quite a masculine thing as well. Men are supposed to be courageous. We're supposed to be, because if we're not courageous, then it's a sign of, weakness. Let me ask you another question. Who was taught that vulnerability was the same as weakness? 
to be vulnerable was to be exposed to be weak. Anyone? No? Maybe it was just a Balamina thing. Who was told that failure should be avoided? Yeah, a couple of people. That risk should be avoided. Why take the risk? Play it safe. I, 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 what, what would happen if? Anyone hear these things growing up? Yeah. Trust me. And my mindset is that I am a cautious leader. I'm not the sort of person who comes in with big ideas and gambles and says, right, let's go, let's go do this. Uh, I'm not going to do that. I'll do what needs to be done, and uh, if I'll do what is necessary or if I've got a guarantee to succeed, but let's be honest. In life, does it ever come with a guarantee that you're going to succeed? It doesn't. There's no guarantees. But can anyone tell me of a single act of courage that doesn't involve a risk of failure? Is there any act of courage that doesn't require some vulnerability? Um, Brene Brown says, you can't get through courage without walking through vulnerability. You think of some of the most courageous things. A soldier being deployed, saying that there's no risk there. Of course there's risk there. It's what makes them brave. Fireman running into a burning building. Brave. Because there's no risk? No, of course there's risk. What about being the first person in a relationship to say, I love you? It's brave. It's vulnerable. Because you're being honest and you don't know what the response is going to be. You're bearing your soul. What happens is you don't know what's going to happen, but what could happen is they say, I like you as a friend. And then you go, ah. And that act of bravery, there's risk. Because it could lead to rejection. Could lead to hurt. Well, you start your own business. There's no guarantees. You could lose everything. Courage will come when we're prepared to accept that we're not going to get every conversation right. We're not going to be perfect. There will be times whenever we start talking and people aren't going to buy into it. They're going to walk away. They're not going to be understood. Folks, the reality of life is that we will all fail at some point or another because nobody's perfect, not even Christians. You're not going to get every conversation right. You're not always going to be able to remember where that verse is that just popped into your head. You're not always going to remember all the right things. But that's okay. That's okay. But the point is that at the starting point, to get out of those locked doors, there has to be a willingness to maybe get it wrong sometimes. Now, I, I pray that as we get more experienced and as we do it more and more, we learn and we stop making the same mistakes and we maybe start getting a wee bit better, but we're still going to 
get it wrong sometimes. Of course we are. Because we're not perfect. We're not perfect. But what else can we do? What else can we do? Well, more training. Sure, absolutely. Uh, a larger overarching strategy might be handy. Certainly, yep. Uh, more coordination with other gospel-believing churches. Absolutely, that would be great in our town. Um, more money. Mm, it's a necessary evil, I'm afraid, sometimes when it comes to missions. And if you want to run um, missions and programs and outreaches, it takes time, it takes money, it takes investment. What about more of the Holy Spirit? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. But let's go back to the text. I want you to see what transformed the, the men's hearts here. Before the day of Pentecost came, before the Holy Spirit was available to them, here's what happened on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his sides. But get this last sentence. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. That was what changed their attitude. This is the turning point. When the truth of the resurrection became a reality that they could grasp. Picture the scene. Peter, James, John. These guys, they haven't seen the Lord yet. All they've seen is the empty tomb. I mean, yeah, okay, so yeah, Jesus done some crazy stuff, but is, could this really be happening? Maybe the resurrection was a metaphorical thing. Maybe it wasn't supposed to be literal. Are we, are we is supposed to be a Messiah? He's supposed to get the Romans out. He's supposed to, are, are, are we? And, then, and, there's, and, and they're trying to get all this wrong. And then oh, I can almost imagine someone saying, oh, guys, we're, it's, it's no use. We're, this is no. And then from somewhere behind him, he just says, peace. And everyone looks to the door, but there's no one there. And the door's still locked. And the guy with the sword's still standing there. And they're looking around and saying, and then all of a sudden, it's Jesus in the middle. It's Jesus at the center of it. And, and they're, they're just going, what is happening? This is a moment that they will never forget. It's this moment that they will never stop talking about. The realization of the reality and power of the resurrection. Jesus is there and they can see him. The stone was not enough to keep him in. And the locked doors were not enough to keep him out. The one betrayed appears to his betrayers to say what? You idiots. Didn't you get what I was saying this whole time? I mean, seriously, I told you this was happening and you, I told you it was going to happen this way. You bunch of dum-dums. Where were you when I needed you? No. He says, peace. The very thing that they didn't have was the one thing that he came and offered them. Love this. I love this. I wrote this down and my mind went to Philippians 4. We quoted it this morning uh, where it says, My God will supply every need of yours according to the riches of glory in Jesus Christ. The one thing that they couldn't do by themselves under tough circumstances was find that peace for their souls. And yet the one who cast out demons and stilled waves by his voice came and spoke and calmed that storm in their hearts. Peace. In fact, Luke tells us that it was a little bit less straightforward than that. Uh, verse 37 tells us that some thought that they were seeing things, like maybe it was a ghost, and they freaked out even more. But verse 38 in, in, in Luke 24 says, Jesus goes on and says, Well, why are you troubled? 
Why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones that you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy, what an amazing verse that is. What an, a very interesting turn of phrase. They disbelieved for joy. In other words, they were getting so giddy, they couldn't really, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. I, I, no way. I don't believe it. No, you're having a laugh. No, no, no way. Seriously? Oh, no. Re- what? No. Yeah. No. Yeah. No. Yeah. No. Yeah. They disbelieved for joy. And they were marveling, and he said to them, have you anything to eat? Sounds like he come to our church okay, doesn't it? Have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, maybe not our church then. Broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. From this moment, things changed. Yes, they spent more time with Jesus. Yes, Jesus appeared to many other people. But when Christ ascended into heaven, they were able to return to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were to be found in the temple praising God. Now remember, Easter Sunday, they're hiding. They're hiding for their lives with the door locked. And then they were able to go out and be in public. They were visible. The door was unlocked. They were able, when the day of Pentecost came, to spark a movement without timidity or reluctance, and they couldn't stop rejoicing or speaking of Christ so much so that people started calling them the Christ ones, the Christians, the Christians. Christ was their motto. Christ was their message. Christ was their motivation. They preached Christ and Him crucified, and not because they couldn't think of anything else to speak about, but because they found it impossible to exhaust this topic. They couldn't help but talk about Jesus. So what's the difference? They saw Christ. And before, the, all they could see was their circumstances. All they could see was the problems. All they could see was the things that would cause them to fear and to hide. But having a clear vision of Jesus changed that. What fueled this new fire in their hearts weeks before the Holy Spirit would come to them was that the Savior who, would send them, who should send them to hell went to hell for them and came back and tell them the story and offered them peace. Seeing Jesus as the resurrected Savior, the undeniable Redeemer of their souls and forgiver of their sins, led them on a totally different path that they had been on. Instead of them hiding from those who would oppose them, now they would defy them. It would be, mean months and years in prison for some. It would mean beatings for others. It would mean hunger and lashings and stoning and martyrdom for the rest. For most of the men standing in that room would not die a natural death. So listen very carefully, because this bit's very important. The things that happened to these men as they died, weren't those the very things that they were afraid the Romans were going to do to them? Wasn't the death that they died the very thing that made them hide in the first place? The things that they were so afraid of still happened to them. The things that they were most worried about still came true. The only thing that changed was that they had the courage to face them. These men did not have perfect lives. 
Everything didn't fall into place. Everything didn't become easy. And churches just grew and blossomed. It was hard. It was hard. But I truly believe the thing that kept them going through all these trials was this moment in this room, the savoring of the moment when the betrayed Son of God would come back to his betrayers, not to scold, but to offer that peace that they couldn't find, not to punish them, but to send them, not to criticize them for forgetting, but to commission them to remember him. Remember that he was dead and but rose again and they who were guilty had been forgiven. And we read in Luke, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and he said to him, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day and on the third day rise from the dead and, they, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem you are witnesses to these things. So look, do this for me right now. Don't know, if you want to close your eyes, do that. But if not, just go back to that first time when you truly encountered Jesus. Just go back. Go back to that feeling of relief. Harness that feeling of joy. Remember how low you felt in your sin and how great he was in lifting it from us. I can remember it vividly. I was eight years old. It was 9.45 on a Wednesday morning, and I was heading out to a holiday Bible club in our church. I hadn't learned anything new, I don't think. There's nothing radical about anything that had happened, but for whatever reason, okay, I'm speaking as from my experience then, I know now what was happening. I know it was the Spirit of God. I know it was conviction. I know what it was. But in my head back then, I had no idea why. All I knew was that I needed to be saved. All I knew was that I needed to ask Jesus into my heart. Now, I know some people maybe say, oh, well, sex is a bit young. Yeah, okay, look, I didn't grasp everything. <laughs> I still don't grasp everything. <laughs> but all I knew is that I needed Jesus. I also knew that no one had to tell me to be happy that day. I also knew that no one had to tell me to get involved in things at school or in church or to take an interest. I never had read Second Corinthians 4, verse 13. But I knew the reality of it. I believed, and therefore I have spoken. If we can get back to that moment when we first believed, that moment when, whenever it just crystallized, and we bowed our heads and we prayed, and we felt that weight of sin just rise from our shoulders. If we can remember that, I think if we can vividly recall that moment where we saw Jesus and felt that part, the reality of the truth that Jesus Christ died and rose again. If we can go and we experience that peace that he gave us that day, it would impact our effectiveness to get out of the upper room, to break through those doors that are locked. Why? Because we'd be so very conscious of the weight of sin that is on other people. 
we'd be far more conscious of the weight of sin that we felt and we can remember what it was like to be searching for something, to be desperate and trying to find relief and not being able to find it. And we'd be quicker not to judge people when they're trying to trick us. They're trying to trick us. They're trying to get into an argument. They're trying to trip us up somewhere along the line. But we might be quicker to see people who are hurting, who are broken. And sometimes broken people and hurt people hurt people, hurt people, hurt people sometimes. And sometimes they just lash out because they can't find the peace that we've treated so facetiously. Because we've withheld the message of forgiveness. We've lost sight of what it means to be guilty. And maybe you're saved 10 years or 20 years or 30 years. And hand on heart, at this point you genuinely don't think you're ever as bad as what people are now. You maybe even look at some Christians and some of the things that they're doing now and think, well, I never used to do that and I thought I was a terrible sinner. So, I mean, I can't be that bad. Because maybe times have changed. And the world that we live in is different now. And we wrap ourselves up in the comfort of our self-righteousness. And our pride and all it does is lull us into apathy because we've forgotten how badly we needed God's grace. How bad we needed that peace and how badly the world around us needs it as well. I want you to imagine the Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul, he's an elderly man. He's ran his race. He is writing what we believe to be his last letter, Second Timothy, just before they chop his head off. He's in prison. And he's writing to this young pastor who is struggling to pastor the church in Ephesus. What's Paul's advice to that young man who's struggling with a church that isn't living out their faith the way they should? With a church that is kind of blown hot and cold? What's his advice to this young man to get them back on track? He says, consider what I'm saying. Verse 8, remember Jesus. Remember Jesus Christ. Raised from the dead, descended from David, as proclaimed by my gospel, for which I suffer to the extent of being chained like a criminal, but the word of God cannot be chained. Remember Jesus. Why? Because Jesus has risen from the dead. He is the one who conquered death and so cannot die. He's also the long-expected son of David. He is the king of Israel. And because he lives forever, because he has risen from the dead, he is the final king of the universe forever. No one can supplant him. No one can overthrow him. No one can take his crown, which makes him the king of kings and the Lord of lords. This is my gospel. Timothy, remember Jesus Christ, remember who he is. Never forget who he is. A savior and king like this is worthy of remembering at all times and in all things. He's the motivation for us to get out of the upper room rut and to share our faith. It is the comfort that we give to ourselves when we are scared and overwhelmed. We remember that if God so loved the world, he gave us his son. And we remember what Romans 8 says. And if he gave us his son, how much more with him will he freely give us all things? And so we remember him. 
we remember him because Philippians 4, he's our source. My God will supply every need of yours according to the riches and glory in Jesus Christ. He's our source. Remember him when you're feeling like you don't have the strength, when you don't have what you need to get on. Remember him. Folks, do you remember what it was like when you first believed? What it was like when he was so big and so strong and the love was so powerful and you wanted to shout it from the rooftops? Paul begs each one of us, remember that. Remember Jesus as when you saw him the most clearly. And yet we forget, don't we? We forget. It's not out of anger. It's not out of malice. It's not like we're trying to be bad at this. But relationships take up time. Marriages take up time. Work takes up time. Children take up time and devotion. And sometimes we don't realize until we stop and look that we've left them behind. And he's in the rear view mirror. We didn't walk away from him on purpose. It was just that we were carrying so much other stuff that we didn't actively bring him with us. I wonder, anyone in church tonight feeling that you've got an upper room mentality? I, is there anyone who's maybe realizing that it's been a while since we've been in awe of the love of Jesus Christ for us? That it's maybe been a while since we've had that peace that we were told that we would have? that it's been a while since we've actually really genuinely been truly amazed that such a God would love such a sinner and would offer such a salvation. But here's the pattern that I see in Scripture. Get a firm vision of the resurrected power of a resurrected Savior and the gospel that flows out from that. It is beautiful. It is glorious. And it's costly because it asks us then to be courageous, to be vulnerable and say to the world, okay, here's who I am. Here's what's been done for me. And here's what I want you to hear and understand. They might reject that. They may not like us for it. But to be truly courageous, to open that door and to go out into the world requires us to understand that we're not going to be perfect all the time. It's not always going to go right for us every time. Every conversation is going to lead to revival. Paul says to Timothy, I'm in chains. It's a glorious gospel. But it's going to cost my life. The word of God can't be chained, but I can't be. There is a cost, but I am not afraid. I believe that Christ is worth it. That's what Paul is telling Timothy here. As his final words, as, as he writes his final letter, he says, remember Christ. He's worth it. I regret nothing, Timothy. I don't regret this life that I've lived. I don't regret the time that I've spent in prison. I don't regret the time that I've spent getting beaten. And I won't regret it whenever that sword falls on my head. For to me, to live is Christ. To die is gain. Isn't that what he told the Philippians? 
when we truly believe, when we get that picture of who Christ is and we see the, the supreme worth of him, then we find the courage to live for him. When we can choose courage, or we can choose to hide away. We can choose risking the chance of doing something for God, or we can be comfortable. The truth is, church, we can't have both. We can't be a soul-winning church and just stay in a holy huddle. I wonder if you want more, if you want the life that we've been called to live. It starts by getting a clear picture of who Jesus is. And that's it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, forgive us for the times that we hold back. Forgive us the times whenever we will maybe put off an opportunity because we're not sure how it's going to go. Lord, I, I don't want to be the kind of preacher who just barks orders to people whenever I can be as guilty as this as anyone else. I'm risk adverse. I want to play it safe. And so, Lord, for all of us, preacher included, Help us to be people who speak for you whenever there's non-Christians around to hear us. Lord, help us to live in a way that speaks to who you are and speaks of what you've done. And Lord, our prayer would be that tonight we would choose to be courageous that it is going to involve risk, that we will make mistakes in this somewhere along the line, but to know that ultimately it is worth it because you are worth it. This message is worth it. Whatever comes our way, it's worth taking this message out into the world. And so, Lord, I pray that you make us courageous. Lord, I pray that you fill us with a boldness And so, for, Lord, we pray first, first and foremost, Lord, reveal more of yourself to us, that our hearts would be set on fire because we can't help but be in awe of who you are. And so, Lord, we pray this in your precious name. Amen.